0: One of the things I said to my dad when I joined the company, I said, we got to get away from, you're getting ads that are ads for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. You're getting ads that are, it's Black History Month ads, or let's feel good about, you know, it's Martin Luther King's birthday, so let's run an ad and talk about how wonderful, how much we support. So we need business ads. We mm-hmm. want ads where they're asking us to be
1: customers. Growing up in the black community in Brooklyn and Washington, D.C. in the 70s and 80s, there were a few things you'd take for granted. We learned Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as the Negro National Anthem, in school. We learned there was practically nothing George Washington Carver couldn't do with a soybean. And a middle-class black family was likely to have at least four magazines in the house, Ebony and Jet, of course, and if they were a little fancy, Essence and Black Enterprise. These days, magazines aren't what they used to be. Like many digital publishers, Black Enterprise is undergoing a reinvention, becoming less a publication and more a live events business. Back in October, I interviewed Intel's CEO at a Black Enterprise tech event outside San Francisco, an event that showcased the brand's push to evolve beyond the printed page. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers, We're gonna learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly, I want you to subscribe so this gets to you automatically every week. One less thing to worry about. Earl Graves Jr., he's known as Butch, is the son of the founder of Black Enterprise, and now Butch is the CEO. I sat down with him to talk about how the brand was born, how it's trying to evolve in a digital world, and what the future looks like for minority entrepreneurs. Here's Butch Graves.
0: I think media companies today, Black Enterprise is not much different than those that are in traditional media or started in traditional media. Uh, You know, I'll I'll call it sort of uh, original media, which would be print, uh, television, radio, what have you. But we were a print. Black Enterprise was uh, founded in 1970 by my dad. Uh, it was a print publication uh, focused strictly on uh, presenting a magazine that was providing information to the growing, affluent, middle-class African-American market uh, that were considering going into business for themselves, hence the name Black Enterprise. Um, and it hit at the right time. You know, it was a time that had come um, for black folks to begin to think about doing something on their own and uh, we were a magazine I'll say from it was founded in August 1970 Mm -hmm. all the way through till I joined the company in 1988.
1: Mm. How old were you in
0: 1970? 1970 I was eight years old (laughs) Um, I remember vividly because my father took I have two younger brothers three of us out to uh, Milwaukee Wisconsin to watch the first Run of the magazine uh. come off the printer, mm-hmm. uh, and and I would say that you know talking about long-term relationship, we still use the same printer today. Um, wow, some 47 years later. So, um, you know, in many ways, you could say I've kind of grown up with the company or the mag what was the magazine at that point. Uh, but uh, 18 years later, when I joined the company, I had just come out of business school, um, and uh, my father was struggling trying to find salespeople. He, you know, because my father was a super salesman, if you will, and so no one ever met up to his standard. You know, he wanted everyone to be able to, to secure business in ten seconds or be him. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, so I joined in sales. I thought, you know, I said, "Listen, I, I, I don't know anything about specifically about the print." I said, "But I can't be that complicated. I'll figure it out." And uh, to his credit, he said, go ahead and jump into it. And I was confident that I could do the sales part. And we, I did. Uh, But then I quickly found out or felt that, you know, I'd love to be able to say, oh, I saw the internet coming. I I did not, uh, (laughs) nor did I think anybody know exactly what was going to take place. But I did feel that we needed to expand outside of just doing a print magazine. And so... We started to do events, but events at that time were, were things that you did like a uh, value add <laughs> to a client rather mm-hmm. than actually something that was a lead for something. It was more like, okay, we'll, we'll do a, an event for you in addition to whatever print you
1: run. And these days for media companies, you look at you know, Recode, which is now part of Vox and their code conference or, you know, VentureBeat, for example. Some, the events that they do are bigger profit makers than their core product in a lot of cases.
0: Well, fast forward to 2017, mm. which is where we are. Um, we are, we're, we no longer use the word, the moniker magazine, so we're just Black Enterprise. Mm. But the truth be told, we are uh, a multimedia company and it's the tail wagging the dog. The events is the major portion of our business now. Mm. We do a half dozen major professional development events uh, that are across the country annually, and then we do smaller events as well uh, for clients. Yes, we still publish the magazine, what we're down to doing six copies a year, so all double issues. And if I had it my way, we would you know, we would have all digital <laughs> <laughs> and no print, uh, because when I speak to millennials and I asked them how many of them actually, with their own money, purchased a magazine or a newspaper. Not one that they ran into at their grandmother's house, but right. one that they actually spent. It's like one out of sixty. Right? Nobody actually does it. And so you have to evolve with what is taking place. Uh, the good news is, is that we've got a treasure trove of content, both video content, print content, uh, event content, And now we just have to figure out a way, like everybody does, to figure out a way to monetize that um, and what makes the most sense. Mm. Uh, But I think for African-Americans in particular, they need a connection, right? And so all of our events have sort of a connection, are ending, are called summits, but it's trying to connect them with corporate America or them with deal makers, so that they can be heard and seen. And that's not something you can get on your phone. Right? You can't do that on your phone.
1: Talk to me about one of the latest events that you had, which is where you and I connected, Black Enterprise Tech Connects. That was held just south of San Francisco in Burlingame. Uh, you had me in, thank you, to interview Brian Krasanich, the CEO of Intel. He's an executive I know well. It speaks, obviously, very well of your events and planning and reputation that you got the CEO of, of Intel at the conference. What was the purpose and thinking behind that? How did that come together? And what's some of the reaction that you got from the attendees around having, you know, certainly one of the titans of of industry in Silicon Valley at an event there in the Bay Area?
0: Well, I think it speaks to two things. One, I think it speaks to Intel's commitment to wanting to focus on this market. So I have to give credit to Intel. I have to give credit to BK O'Brien for making the time, taking the time out of his schedule to be a part of it. And his presence says a lot, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, he's, some people speak to speak. Um, he's walking the walk, and he's demonstrating it by his presence and his commitment to be there. Uh, the impetus of it is quite simple. It is, no, anybody that's paying attention can see that the wealth creation that's taking place in this country is taking place in the West Coast, in Silicon Valley in particular, mm. right? Um, and if you're not a part and parcel to that economy, you're going to be left out in some way, shape, or form. So our impetus in trying to create a Tech Connect Summit is to say to our audience, "Hey, raise the you know waving the flag at them, join us, come be a part of this, meet people, get involved." Be there so that you can be play. You know, you can have a role in where this wealth creation is taking place. Mm-hmm. Because if you're focusing on just wanting to be an auto dealer, you know, while that can be a, a nice living per se, that may or may not exist in the condition it is in today. Right. In ten right. years, when, <laughs> right. you know, Uber, <laughs>
1: Lyft, Tesla going direct, right. all the various auto driving cars. Tech yeah. Right. yeah. So I mean,
0: you've got to be able to say. You see it coming, it's happening in front of you. The disruptors are the norm now. It used to be kind of like, "Oh, the disruptors are the outliers like you know the, the disruptors are the norm, and so in that environment, we've got to make it seem uh, we have to demystify technology to some degree mm-hmm. and make it you know and, 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 and weave it into our our DNA so that we more readily utilize it, uh, and it's already in, a, in in our everyday lives, right? We just, sometimes we ignore it, and other times we don't, but I think it was very important for that, it was very important for us to bring, as you know, we brought 15 different HBCUs to bring their hackathon teams there. Mm-hmm. Historically and, black
1: colleges and universities for yes. the uninitiated. <laughs> right. <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Historically black colleges and universities, right? Uh, and so we had 60 students there for, that were all engineers and understood technology and giving them an opportunity to seek employment, and get jobs, and be connected to folks. So, you know, right now it's our third or fourth largest event. I suspect in two years' time it will be our first or second largest event.
1: Hmm. Take me back. Tell me a little bit about this guy here, uh, Earl Graves Sr., and the time around when he started Black Enterprise. What was happening? What, what sparked it?
0: So the, the start of Black Enterprise is, is very interesting in, in many ways in that, you know, my father's not a publisher by trade. He's not a, you know, he wasn't in this business at all. Mm. Um, he was uh, an advanced person. Uh, for Robert F. Kennedy, mm. he worked in the Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy administration uh, for two or three years, and in fact, we all three—my my two younger brothers and myself—were in Los Angeles when he was assassinated mm. uh, during the the convention when he was, you know, he was, he was the nominee for the Democratic Party and, uh, you know, presumed to be the the. Uh, uh, well, potentially, the president of the United yeah. States, yeah. Um, if, if things had held. So uh, suddenly he said he found himself unemployed with three hungry boys. And, uh, but the Kennedy administration was very good to the people who were working in the administration. And they said they were going to try to identify and make sure that they were all employed. He was offered different jobs. And someone said, you know, Earl, you should, you know, through your context, life, you should think about starting a newsletter. Ignorance is bliss. He said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I said, yeah, you can do that and talk about how black business can play a role in redevelopment of the country. Um, Then someone else said, if you're going to do a newsletter, you might as well do a magazine. I said, yep, that sounds great, too. Um, Didn't know the difference. And really, just on his gut um, perseverance, um, started Black Enterprise in, in 1970, and You have to understand what the- this is a time of
1: you know <laughs> post major upheaval.
0: Yeah, total right? unrest. From what I from what I read, you
1: know, I, was, I was born in '76, so okay, I can't quite understand that, right? <laughs> but uh, but I mean demonstrations, riots, outpouring of emotion after you know the, losing all of these leaders. You know JFK, MLK, RFK, and more. You know, Malcolm, go down the line. There's so many leaders who were lost during that time, people who were core to people's, you know, sense of self and and what was possible. Um, To start a magazine about business in that time, and I guess self-determination to some extent, meant what?
0: It was the coming of the ages for the African-American market to step out and be a part of the economy, not just workers in the economy. Mm. So you take this unrest of the 60s, upon which, you know, people forget African Americans were just given the right to vote at that time, right? Right. So things that young people take for granted today just didn't exist. Yeah, literally no. take for granted. I mean, literally take for granted. <laughs> and so there's no concept of that. There's no, there's no recognition of what was in the past. This is, we're talking about just less than 50 years ago.
1: Yeah.
0: And so... The time was different. Now, it was also a time that needed healing. Country needed healing. And they needed a different voice. And so, not coincidentally, both Black Enterprise and Essence were both founded in 1970. Mm. So you had a magazine focusing on black business and becoming an entrepreneur, and you had a magazine about self-determination of what beauty is to find for black women, both launched in 1970.
1: And before that there had been Ebony and Jet. That were just sort of general purpose news magazine Correct.
0: outlets. Yes, right. I think Th-
1: these are more specific.
0: Yeah, Johnson Publishing was founded in the fifties. Mm-hmm. I think fifty-five. It was actually founded. Um, but yes, it was general interest. Um, it. W- but it was the only communication vehicles. Also, remember, you know, again, something people take for granted. There is. There is no cell phones. There is no. Uh, there's six channels on television. Uh-huh. Okay, so your communication to the African American community was through black-owned newspapers, black magazines. That's how information was disseminated to the African American market, and so it was a time upon which African Americans were entering into the into corporate America. African Americans were being given opportunities, in entrepreneurship, and the middle class was forming, mm-hmm. and so. We were speaking to, at that time, the black middle class or upper middle class. That's what we've continued to do, but and that's sort of obviously gone up as time has gone on in terms of income. Uh, but a really interesting and different time, and one upon which the most important aspect is that you know my father was able to connect with. By the tenth issue, the magazine became profitable. Wow. So that was through his his sheer determination to succeed. He was a, you know, he was in a you know, Green Beret in the Army. I mean, he had a sense of hard work and discipline that helped to move us forward on that. Um, but I think the time had come, the country was looking for something different, right? Mm-hmm. Not dissimilar to what the times we face are in today, right? but in a completely different, <laughs> you know. Who were uh, the manner.
1: major advertisers then, do you remember?
0: Yes, so the founding advertisers uh, were... Or he called them charter advertisers at the time. Uh, General Motors, IBM, Ford. Uh, what was Philip what Mar- was called Philip Morris was called something different at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, people forget that. But at those times, you could advertise heavily in uh, cigarettes or tobacco, and and uh, liquor was oh yeah you know major major. Advertising. I remember
1: growing up seeing Newport ads all over the place. And oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, Camel. Yeah, Camel and <laughs> Marlboro. <Yeah. laughs>
1: so, was it Newport alive with pleasure? That was all over the yeah. place.
0: <laughs> still, and Newport's still alive. <laughs> okay. So, um, but we have a different, you know, at that time, and it, it's different in terms of how we've evolved. And one of the things I said to my dad at, when I joined the company, I said, we've got to get away from, you're getting ads that are ads for the wrong reason. You're mm. getting ads that are It's Black History Month ads, or let's feel good about, you know, it's Martin Luther King's birthday, so let's run an ad and talk about how wonderful, how much we support. So we need business ads. We -hmm. want ads where they're asking us to be customers. So we want financial service ads. We want insurance companies. We want banks and investment banks, and we want technology companies. And so we started to change the mix of who we were pursuing because we are by ourselves african americans you know if you put us as a as a as a gdp for a country african americans would be in the top 12 economies in and of itself we just need to make sure that we take you know take better advantage of what that opportunity
1: is so part of that must have meant drawing up some of the first demographic information to make a case for the size, value of the black community as, as a salesperson. Was that still going on um, in, what was it, the, the mid-late 80s when you officially joined?
0: Yeah. Um, again, I thought, I mean, if you, it would, what advertisers began to focus on and understand is that the African-American community or African-American market and the Hispanic market were no longer a, you know, an asterisk or a sideshow. Mm-hmm right actually oops they're becoming more and more part of the main event and fast forward to today there is 20 cities in this country where the the, the majority of the population is black and brown mm-hmm. so the browning of america it was no longer sort of just a something nice to talk about or an experiment it was actually taking place before their very eyes so the question is then how are you going to get that market how how is an an advertiser going to secure the African American and Hispanic market to bring them on as customers. And what was missing, in my view, is the invitation to, you know, is, is to say, hey, John, I see you. You're an accomplished professional. I want your business. I want your banking business. I want your auto business. I want to give you a home loan. I want all the things that I would want for any other market, mm-hmm. and I'm going to speak directly to you.
1: As opposed At, to right. I'm willing to lump you in with this other group that I'm really focused on, right. but, but you're <laughs> allowed to because...
0: Right. So it's, a, it's, a it's, it's like being the plus one. That's what I always refer to. <laughs> like if you go to a wedding and they make you a plus one, they don't, you don't have a name, you're just the plus one. Yeah. So now you're speaking to the market as, no, I'm, my invitation is being extended directly to you. So I always say to our 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 advertisers, sponsors, speak to me directly, right? Not as something to the side, but as something, and and make me feel a valued part of what you want. If you want my business, extend the invitation to me, and tell me why it's important for me to have the business. This notion of this one market, and we're going to just run this in the general market, and through osmosis. I'm supposed to know or you're supposed to know that you're speaking directly to doesn't work. Hmm. You wouldn't do that in anything else. You target everything else, so target this market.
1: Um, Talk to me about your development through the company, from when you first joined to taking over. There are key experiences, key challenges that have shaped how you lead this company now.
0: Yeah. um, You know, when I... When I joined the company I was focused specifically on sales, right? I, mean, that, that's, I guess that's how you kind of learn the business, but it was specifically on sales and I wasn't involved in the content side. I was focused on, I would take the content, create my sales team, go out and we would sell this. And as time went on and I started to take on additional roles in the company and I learned other things in like circulation and I learned stuff having to do with finance and then I ultimately got involved with content, I realized that there really could not be, in order to sell effectively, you've gotta be engaged in the content. Mm. And at the end of the day, for any media company, content is king, right? Now this is, you know, again, I didn't have a crystal ball to say, oh, Netflix is coming, (laughs) and Hulu is coming, but what I knew is, is that this content had to, was gonna shape what we did. But there were things that happened along the way that shaped how I felt we needed to change the company you know I remember speaking to a uh, import car manufacturer car manufacturer and trying to get them to want to to advertise in black enterprise
1: so was this like a Toyota or in, it wasn't it, it wasn't
0: Japanese it was a European car manufacturer BMW so.
1: or? <laughs>
0: one of the one of these <laughs> one of these folks <laughs> right. I'll leave the name out of it for for obvious purposes because they're a client today but it took but their response living over in Europe was that we don't want our brand associated with the black consumer market <laughs> and that was a literal quote that's what that, that was the, the the head of the you know marketing within the company and the the CEO saying well, that's not good for a brand because it will be attached to whatever you all stand for. So their lack of understanding... How do you respond to... Because on the one hand, it's <laughs> almost
1: like, well, I appreciate your candor because <laughs> back in North America, there are usually more polite ways of implying that without outright saying it. But how do you How do you respond? You know,
0: it's... it's uh, what is the thing, you know, it, the, what's better, to the, the, the face the enemy you see or the enemy you don't see, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, frankly... I'd rather face the person I can see, right? Right, because uh, you can address right. that. Right. I can address that. I mean, if, if a person is unknowingly racist, and I hate to say unknowingly, because there's this whole thing of conscious and unconscious, which I think is all BS, but <laughs> I'll put that aside for a moment. The notion that someone would say, I don't want our brand associated with your market, says to me they're not exposed. Doesn't mean that they wait, I don't think they woke up in the morning and said, How can I exclude it? It's just that my their exposure to this market was what they saw on TV. Right. What they saw on in newspapers or whatever. So what it means to me is, which is why I think the importance of having ethnic, ethnic owned media, ethnic managed media, is that he or she who controls the, the the content or controls the dialogue, controls the images and what have you that you see. And so I felt it was important for, to make sure that we addressed it. So I said to her, I said, okay, I understand. You don't want to associate with the market. I said, do you realize that there is, there are, there are groups of people that own your vehicle, black, that have their own signature group underneath it? And then I went around and went to the dealers and went and asked the dealers, what percentage of your sales go through African Americans, and they were shocked to find out the percentage of people that were buying their carts as, a, as opposed to the percentage of population that we you know uh, we were at that time. Mm-hmm. so that so you're ex- saying it was kind of an overrepresentation. Yeah, we were indexing at really? in 220 something uh, compared to our population base. so they were missing they were getting this market without actually investing in the market. Mm. So, in some ways they would say, well, if we didn't invest in it, we, what, I mean, we're doing this anyway.
1: But if they're smart, they say, well, if we're doing this without even trying. Exactly. What, what if we actually showed some appreciation?
0: And extended the invitation. Right. And so, we guided them, if you will. It, it didn't happen overnight, but we guided them and worked with them. And Now, so today, they're a believer, right? They yeah. see it. And they've got Black dealers, I mean, they didn't have, they, at the time, this company had no black dealers, spent no money in procurement with, with African American firms, I mean, didn't understand it was a 360 degree relationship you needed to have. They joined the party, and, and in some cases now, you'll see import companies um, doing better than even the domestic companies are with this market. Hmm. Because, you know, again, they're, they're quicker to adapt. It's like techni- you know, technology companies are quick to adapt. Yeah. you know Some of these old-line corporations are like turning around a tanker in the, in the lake. Right? It's, you know, it, it, they don't get very far. It, it takes 100 turns to be able to get it done as opposed to a quick three-point turn. Um, so that was, a, that was a, a, a major point for me in terms of seeing how we were looked at. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you're inside you begin to think that people actually, you know, oh, people definitely respect us. People definitely respect this market. People definitely understand this market. Then when you see it through the eyes of someone else and you say, oh my God, these folks really don't respect this market. They don't understand this market. So you can either be angry at it, right? Or you can, which we prefer to do, is to channel that discontent and work with people to show them a way to make it more inclusive and to look at us as a solid investment rather than as a, as a threat, right? Because more often times than not, you hear people saying, oh, they're, they're responding to a threat of a boycott or someone marching on them or what have you. That's not a, you win the battle and lose the war.
1: Right. Entrepreneurialism was at the core of the initial idea. And I wonder <coughs> to what extent it still is, to what extent is this generation coming up, this millennial generation within the black community, well-equipped equi- to take advantage of the opportunities? To what extent is maybe it, it different now? And, and part of black enterprises' role is to provide even more opportunity or insight into how to be an entrepreneur in this era. How has how the entrepreneurial focus shifted as technology and time has advanced?
0: Yeah, technology is... Uh, in many ways is a great equalizer. Right? It can to some degree level a playing field. You can you could start a business online and no one know exactly what you look like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? And if if it actually is disruptive or helpful enough, people may gravitate towards it and say, hey, I want to be a part of it, what have you. So it in many ways technology has allowed people to say there's less uh, th- there's less things that encumber my ability to start a business. Now, in my view, what has happened is for black entrepreneurs is that the lack of access to capital for the longest time was the biggest challenge facing minority-owned businesses as a mm. whole. Mm-hmm. Right. So that if you had a great idea and you go to your local bank and the bank's like, sorry, you know, right? No, 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 no. A hundred times no. Okay. We're not open. We're not available. What have you? So lack of access to capital, and we weren't really involved in the private equity market, you know. So it became more of a friends and family, and you're trying to find ways to raise capital, and it's hard. That was what I think a lot of African American firms faced in the '90s, 2000s. What you face today, or the biggest challenge for for minority owned business today, is not necessarily lack of access to capital; it's lack of scale.
1: Like a scale, okay.
0: Because uh, scale, at the end of the day, um, if you don't have enough scale, you can't do business with large corporations. So you can go and say, oh, Microsoft, I think it would be great if you would buy products from my company. I can provide you services.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they say, great, you know, okay, good. What, what do you guys do? Well, we make paper cups and whatever, and we, we distribute those and say, good. And you say, well, how much did you do in sales last year? And you say, oh, well, I did a half million dollars in sales last year. I said, oh, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to bid on that contract because our minimum contract we've got is $10 million, which would be a small contract mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is that we're left out of those, I'll call it tier one contracts, due to scale. So what we have to do is two things. One is we have to start to bring our enterprises together, right? We've got to...
1: Together, meaning merge. Okay,
0: right. Because, you know, I jokingly say this when I speak to groups, African American groups that are entrepreneurs. I said somehow or another, Exxon and Mobil were able to get together. American Airlines and U.S. Air to together. So Pookie and Ray Ray can can merge. <laughs> right. We we right. got to be able to take our smaller companies and put them together and make one on one equal three. Because if you have a bunch of small companies trying to do business with Walmart, hmm. right? Walmart, the guys told me, they sell 138 different barbecue sauces. They need another barbecue sauce and they need a hole in the head. They, they need companies of scale, minority owned, hmm. that they can do business with, that can ship and transport products, that can produce enough for them to be able to do business with. And this is across corporate America. I'm not just talking about Walmart, I'm talking about any corporation. And so, minority, the challenge for, for entrepreneurs today is how do I take my idea, make it become accessible through technology, mm-hmm. easily accessible through technology, and then get to scale fast enough that I can earn business from corporate America? Otherwise, I'll be marginalized into being a, a small business, right? A, a, a minute business forever. right? You may still, you could be the, you know, as I say to folks, you you have two choices. You can either be chairman, CEO, president, bottle washer, everything of a company that generates a half million dollars and own 100% of it. right? Or would you rather own 20% of a company that's doing $100 million in sales and you're a 20% owner?
1: Right. And you're on the board.
0: Right. And you're on the board. I mean, so you, you have these options. And so the notion of Owning everything has got to change, right? The, 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 I have to be 100% black-owned, otherwise, somehow, or another, I'm not legitimate. I'm not real, right? And that's just not how. Now, I think the good news—you're still independent. We're still independent, <laughs> uh, but I will say this to you: two things, uh, in 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 full transparency. W- yes, we're still independent, but I will say I'm an investor, a minority investor. Mm-hmm. In two other firms that are minority-owned firms, mm-hmm. of which I'm not a 51% uh, owner, and I would say, although my father, back in the day and his generation, was loath to even consider selling uh, their company, any portion of the company, I would say to you today, if someone comes to me today, right? I mean, I'm looking at it now. You know, there's no magic to me being the 100% minority-owned, 100% black-owned independent having to use all of my own resources to grow my company mm. no benefit to that so I'm open right I'm open if someone came to, comes to me to, tomorrow and says hey I'd like to buy a portion of your company that I can help you to grow I'm wide open right I mean it, it I'm not necessarily looking I'm not looking to sell the whole company mm-hmm. but I'm looking to do business with whomever and if it can help to grow the company if it can help me to employ more African-Americans it can help me to Grow revenue with for you know for our market, absolutely.
1: Um, What's the one thing? Because it's interesting. You're you're kind of in a role uh, of a consultant to the community, uh, as well as being a media outlet and gatherer, organizer of events. Um, If there's one thing that you would advise uh, young potential entrepreneurs to do, getting started, preparing to get started, what would it be?
0: I would say the primary thing is they've got to be thinking five years, 10 years down the road as to what the world's going to look like. The world's become smaller Hmm. due to technology, not physically smaller. But the ability to be able to do business across the world, across, you know, anywhere through technology has made the world a smaller place. So the question that becomes is, are you getting involved in a business that's going to be here and it's going to be necessary three years and five years down the road? you got to go into a business that's going to be necessary for people to be able to say, I need that, and I'm going to need that for a short period of time, for a long period of time. Mm. I was, this past weekend, I was in, 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 uh, in Florida, and I went into a couple of different department stores, something I need to pick up, and you would have thought it was midnight <laughs> on a Sunday. I mean, there was yeah. that few people
1: inside the store. Same thing. I was in San Francisco a couple weeks ago at, at Westfield San Francisco Center, and it looked like... A stink bomb had gone off. In right. That, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> you walk into,
0: and I'm saying to myself now, when they were building these big boxes, there was a time it made sense. Mm. That's the way people shopped. That's what it became. It was an occasion. It's what you did on a Saturday and Sunday. You went. You you know, you know did all these different things. You hung up. That is not the way upon which society is working today. People today want to point, click, and ship, point, click, ship. I really don't need to see it. I don't need to hold it. And if I don't like it, I just send it back.
1: Yeah, usually if right. I show up at a retail <laughs> location it's because something went wrong.
0: Right. right. You, generally, most people that are in a retail location today <laughs> are going to replace them because they're traveling and forgot <laughs> something. Right. right. And they right. can't get it in the next hour, so I say, oh, God, okay, i got to go over here <laughs> and get whatever, i got to go get a shirt. So when you're looking at your new business now, you got to think down the line, now what, you know, 10 years ago, did anybody think that car services would be rendered, I mean, literally almost useless? Did anyone think that that car rental companies were going to have a challenge? People think that that there were going to be self-driving cars? And so as you start to look at businesses, think down the line as to what people will always need, Mm. right? Yeah. I mean, what are we gonna to need to sustain ourselves? Well, food, you, you still need food, okay, so, but how food is delivered, how food is prepared, you know, totally different thing. You go to some restaurants, you know, some of the casual dining restaurants, just like the, you know, empty. Yeah. Because you can point, click, deliver, point, click, deliver, almost anything you want, any way, shape, or form. So, you know that is what they look at. I think the good news is is that I think today's millennial generation is less fearful than my generation and clearly of my father's generation. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't carry the same fear of starting a business and it not working out or having. They're ready to start a business, go out on their own, try something. It doesn't work, try something else, and that's good. Yeah, right. That's yeah. good. I mean that's a healthy thing. Um, the days of you know I have four millennial children between twenty two and twenty seven.
1: I can't four think. between twenty two and four between twenty two and twenty seven. Oh, you packed them in, all right?
0: Yes. Well, <laughs> twins. I had twins. <laughs> okay. Right. So I got a I got a head start. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> but but uh, I can't see any of them working for some company for thirty years. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just don't see that in this generation. People, they will tell you, I mean, I've had millennials tell me in an interview, yeah, I plan on being here, you know, two, three years max. <laughs> in and then, an interview, really? Right, in an interview. Wow. Uh, and I appreciate the candor, mm-hmm. but it also is, you know, almost a jolt to the system, because you're like, no, but this is a great place. I mean, you're going to, you know, yeah, yeah, I understand all that, but I'm going to do this for a couple of years, but I'm really looking to go to do something in this area, mm. and I can hone my skills with you, and then I'm going to jump out and do... Uh, so it's it's good, it's an interesting time from that sp- perspective, but it, it's a challenge for employers, uh, really a challenge for employers. And then it, you know, we talked a little bit about the whole social, in, you know, there's, there's this, this, it's clouded, all of this opportunity and wealth creation. It's interesting, we have these two dichotomies sitting here in the, in the country today. You've got all this wealth being created and all these opportunities, and then you've got one of the most unhealthy social unrest environments that we've ever seen yeah. as a country. Yeah. And somehow or two, another, those two don't match up, right? And, and, and hopefully this, this bridge and the divisiveness can be, and the rhetoric can be brought down. But while it still exists, it's really, really tough.
1: Well... Uh, starting new businesses, entrepreneurialism, um, capitalism has long been a part of uh, getting through these periods in this country. So, Butch, I appreciate you sitting down and, and sharing those insights. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. My thanks to Butch Graves. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review. If you enjoyed this, Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually, Wednesdays 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you, Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox to see video again from some of these podcast interviews, or go to Facebook and search for John Fort. Twitter, same thing. You'll know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.